This podcast is a presentation of Nags Head Church, reaching people to discover life in Christ. Stay tuned and visit us on the internet at nagsheadchurch.org. When we got to this particular passage that we're going to read in just a moment, beginning in verse 15, um, I made the statement that this passage of Scripture down through verse 20 is probably the most succinct most, um, I don't want to say most profound, but it is certainly the passage of Scripture in all the New Testament. If you really want to learn some things about Jesus, this is one of the great places to go because this tells us who he is in so many different ways. Uh, for our guests, we're in a study in this letter from the Apostle Paul to the church in the Asia Minor, Asia Minor city of Colossae. And uh, we're seeing how Paul's point in this letter to this church was, you guys got to stand firm in what we believe. Um, Back up this morning, let's go back to verse 15, and I want to read down through verse 17 and kind of give a little bit of review and a little bit of background as we jump into verse 18. Paul starts by saying he, and he's talking about Jesus here, all right? He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over All creation, for everything was created by him. In heaven and on earth, in in the, the visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and by him all things hold together. Here's what the Bible tells us in this passage that we've been studying these last few weeks about Jesus and how he ranks in the universe, if you will. Just some quick points from the last few weeks. He has ultimate authority over the universe. Jesus does. It would be like if he was sitting in, at his desk in heaven and like Harry Truman had the, the little placard that was on his desk. Remember what it said? Those of you who have heard of I don't remember Harry Truman either. But I've heard of Harry Truman said, what did it say? The buck stops here. Jesus has the ultimate authority over all of the universe. He is, it tells us, he is the creator of the universe. He's the one in Genesis chapter 1 who spoke the words, let there be light. And there was light. He's the one that said all of those things. He's the one that, if you will, knelt down on the ground and gathered a lump of clay and bent over and breathed into that lump of clay the breath of life and Adam was formed. That was Jesus, the creator of the universe. Then Paul says he is before all things. We said he's the precursor to everything. He has no beginning. You can't go back and say, when did Jesus start? There is no starting point or ending point with Jesus because he is eternal. He predates everything in the universe. And then Paul says he holds everything together. He's the sustainer of the universe. The reason that you can sit in your chair right now is because Jesus holds you there. If it wasn't for Jesus, who knows where we'd be smashing against the walls and everything else, all right? You say, well, that's gravity. Who created gravity? Jesus did, all right? So Jesus is the one who holds, he's the one that, that those little, you know, you studied about atoms when you were in school, you know, and, and, all, and, and spinning around. Who keeps all that stuff together? It's Jesus Christ. And without him, there would be no order to anything. He is the sustainer. Now, it is convenient and it is simple and it is easy for us in our minds. And this is how so many people in the world approach God and approach Jesus. 
It's simple, easy, convenient to think of Christ as over all the universe and, and as the creator that started it all. And, and then, you know, that was so very long ago, thousands upon thousands upon thousands of years ago, whenever that was, and, and that he is eternal and that he had no beginning. Well, that's just too hard to understand, so I won't let that get in my head. But, but yeah, I can accept that. And that he keeps everything in the universe from falling apart. It doesn't require much to, for me to say Yes, Jesus is God, and he's out there somewhere a gazillion miles away in a place I can't see, in a place I can't comprehend, and that's nice. And I can live with that. And that's how so many people in this world view the Lord, view God, view Jesus Christ. It's safe and easy to imagine God being at a distance But that's not reality. He's personal. He's an in-touch, right-here God. And now Paul is going to bring it closer to home for these first-century Christians and to bring it home to them, just like us here at Nags Head Church, these people that got this letter in Colossae were a church. And this letter was sent to them. And Paul says to them in this letter, it's being read to them by their pastor on, on a Sunday. And, and Paul says, listen, in this letter, here's how Jesus Christ ranks in our church. We talked about the universe. Let's bring it really close to home. Where is he in our church? What's his position here? First, let's talk about, before we get into verse 18... Let's read verse 18. Let's start. He is also the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he might come to have first place in everything. Let's talk about the church. Let me give you 10 bullet points that define and describe the church, all right? Write quickly if you're taking notes. Number one, the church is a body, not a building. This building that we're in right now, Roof and walls and windows, floors. Um, it, it's a facility. It's a house. It's, it's where the, it houses the church when we gather together. But it's not the church. It's really technically incorrect for us to drive by and say, there's Nags Head Church. Even though the sign out front says, Nags Head Church, this isn't a church. It is now. Why? Because we're here. Okay. Church is not a body, it's not a building, it's a body. Secondly, the church is an organism, not an organization. Organism means it's alive. It's not just on paper. It's not just an incorporation. It, it, it's, it has life. It breathes and it moves and it reproduces like a physical body. It, it, does have, it is organized. Your body is organized, isn't it? You have all these systems in your body that work together so that you can function. When one of those systems fails to work, bad things happen. The church is organized and has systems, but the church is alive in the sense that it reproduces itself with the very life that we've been given. It's an organism, not a club, not a corporation, not an organization. Thirdly, it is unique, not universal. What do you mean by that? Well, not everybody in this world is a part of the church. In fact, most people in this world are not. 
Who's in the church? Only those with saving faith in Christ belong to the church. It's a, the, it's, it's a called out assembly. The, the, the word ekklesia, the Greek word for church. The New Testament's written in Greek. When Jesus said, I'll build my church, Matthew wrote that down and he used the word ekklesia. That's what Paul uses and Peter uses and John. When they use the word church, ekklesia means called out assembly. And the members of the church are called out. Called out of what? Called out of this world. To be separate, to be part, to be unique. You're different if you're a Christian. You belong to a different family if you're a Christian. It is the next one. It is interdependent on one another, not independent of each other. Interdependent. That means we depend upon each other. Here, listen to me, and, and you guys get this because you're here, but there are people at not who will not darken the doors of a church on this Sunday or any Sunday, but say, God and me are okay. I have a good relationship with him. I even am a believer in Jesus Christ, but I don't need the church. They miss the whole New Testament. They might as well take and rip out for the whole book of Acts and the epistles out of their New Testament and toss it in the trash because they don't believe what God has said. The church is something we are called to be part of, and we are called to be interdependent on one another. Let me use an example, not to embarrass anybody, but Marie Anderson's here this morning. Where are you, Marie? I saw you right over here. Marie's car broke down the other day. Her starter died, and she went to her mechanic, and they said, we'll order you a part. The part came in yesterday, and they tried to put it in her car, and it was no good. And so yesterday on Facebook, on our Facebook church Facebook group, you say, oh, I don't want to get into that stuff. Listen, here's what happened. Marie got on there and said, I need a ride to church. And all of a sudden, boom, 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 boom. All these people from Nag said church responded and said, I can pick you up. I can take you home. I'll even feed you lunch after church and bring you back to youth group on Sunday night and let you watch the Redskins game on my TV. She got all of those kinds of responses. Is that true? I mean, just broom, right there they were. And I looked at that and I said, God, this is what the church is all about. We are interdependent on one another. We meet one another's needs. We care about each other. We pray for each other. We give each other rides when our cars break down. There is no such thing in the New Testament as a lone ranger Christian. The church is seen as gathering together. Next, its leadership is under Christ, not lords over the flock. What do you mean by that? Paul told the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20 when he met with them, he said, hey guys, listen up. You've been appointed to your position by the Holy Spirit. I didn't choose this. You told me I was and... The Holy Spirit made me this. And he said, you've been appointed by the Spirit to be, in that verse he says, to, be, to shepherd the flock. Peter told the elders in 1 Peter chapter 5, he said, you are under shepherds, directly submissive to Christ, he says, who is the chief shepherd. So we have leadership in the church that's under Christ. Next, the church is gifted to serve, not selfish for gifts. Paul spoke about that to the Corinthians because there's some of them who said, we want this gift and we want, I wish I had that gift. He said, you missed the point. The Holy Spirit gives the gifts as he wills, not as you will. 
So don't be selfish for gifts. Take the gifts that God's give you, given you and use them to serve. The Holy Spirit enables every one of us in the church to give ourselves in ministry to each other. There are folks upstairs right now in both of those rooms. There are folks downstairs in both of those rooms right now using their spiritual gifts of serving so that we can have a great quiet worship gathering here because they've got kids out there and they're teaching them the word of God and they're loving them. They're using their gifts. We're given gifts to give ourselves in ministry to each other. Here's what this means. Here's another way of looking at this. We're gifted to serve, not selfish for gifts. We are to be contributors to the body, not consumers of the body. I'm going to use a word that we hear in the the political world right now and, and say it this way. We should not be thinking that we have all kinds of entitlements in the church. Rather, we need to say, how can I give to others? What can I produce? What can I give? How can I serve other people? Next, the church is supernaturally empowered by the Holy Spirit, not human strength. God indwells the church in the person of the Holy Spirit, and he does so to accomplish what we could never do without him. If what we're doing today is all human-generated, if it's all because of their talent and my skills and, 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 and somebody's ability to make coffee this morning, if that's what makes all this happen and God's not behind it and driving it and, and, and empowering it all, you know, what in the world? We could be doing, come on. There must be something more to that. And the Bible says the Holy Spirit, God, indwells us to empower us to do what we could not do without him, apart from him. Otherwise, we'd just be another club. Our mission as a church comes from Christ. I love this next part. I I thought up all these. Not a committee. Don't throw anything at me. Committee around the exit church for our guests is a curse word. Right? We don't have committees here. Well, every now and then, some of our, one of our partners will say something about this committee or that committee, and when they do it in my presence, they get the evil eye. And they know they've stepped in it. And they want to know, oh, I, I didn't mean committee, I, I, I meant team. You know, you, know, you know what a camel is? A camel is a horse put together by a Baptist committee. Have you heard that before? You know? <laughs> Committees think about stuff. Teams do stuff. Our church is driven by teams who do stuff. Our team Tuesday night that's going to go to Ruthie's Kitchen, our local uh, ministry outreach here in our community that feeds less fortunate folks. And and we have a team of of folks who are baking turkeys and making stuffing and mashed potatoes and gravy and all that. They're doing a thanks. They're their team. Our mission comes from Christ, not from a committee. Nobody thought this up. We're his body. We represent him. He gets to say what our mission is in this world. But, you know, the world can't see Jesus. I've never seen him, maybe in a dream or maybe on TV or something, but that's not really him. They can't see him. But the world does see us every day. Everywhere we work and everywhere we live, and one of the major reasons we exist here at Nagshead Church is to spread the gospel of Christ here at Nagshead Church, his mission. We say it this way, love God, love others, reach the world. Then the church is to be countercultural, not conforming to the world's systems. Countercultural. When the world becomes, hear me, when the world becomes comfortable with the church 
Or the church becomes comfortable with the world. The church has ceased to be salt and light. The church has ceased to confront wrong and injustice and sin. So Jesus told us, you're to be countercultural. You're to, to go against the flow. You're to swim upstream. You're to be fish out of water. You're to be salt and light. He told us, because of that, you should expect to be rejected, not accepted by the world. So expect that. Don't get mad about it. Say, this is what Jesus said. But I love John 16, He said, in the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Countercultural. And then lastly, the church is a family of pilgrims on this earth. We're not a permanent fixture here. We live in a time, as I understand the Bible, we live in a time in the Bible called the church age. And God's timeline began on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. And it will conclude one day, could be today, but it will conclude when the mission of the church is accomplished. And then when that day happens, when that day comes, when the last person has said, I trust Jesus as my Savior, when the gospel has gone to every tongue and every nation and in every language, then God's going to say, all right, church time's over. Come home. And he'll take us away to be with him forever, the Bible says, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, we will meet Christ in the air. When will that happen, Rick? I'd love for it to happen right now. Ready? I'm a little bit higher than you. I get there first. (laughs) Could happen. You mean it could happen right now? Yeah. Could happen on December 21st. Just kidding. But it could happen any day. Now, We just read a few moments ago, verses 15 to 17, that describe the Son, Jesus, his relationship to the old creation, to the universe, to this world that was created so long ago. Verse 18 that we just read describes his relationship to the new creation. What's the new creation? We've just been talking about her. The church, right? Describes his relationship to us. And what does he say in these verses? Number one, point number one, Christ is the sovereign of the church. He said he is also, not only is he over everything in creation, he's the head of the body, the church. Jot this down somewhere. The, the church is Jesus' idea. That was his idea. What, what are some other ideas? Marriage. God's idea in the garden. He put Adam and Eve together. And marriage is is something, church is something that we say was ordained by God. Means God made it a sacred thing. God put it together. God established it. Jesus said, this is my church and I will build it. It's his idea. Sovereign over the church. The word sovereign means he's the ruler. He's the one who's in control. And he is, as Paul says here in his words, he's the head. 
Well, the head does what? The head directs all the functions of the rest of the body. Cut off your head and what will you be doing in the next 10 seconds? Nothing. Why is that? It's because in, in your head, most of us here, in your head is where your brain exists. You know? And your brain is the central nervous system, the, the, the intelligence place of your body. It's where everything is told what to do. And he says Jesus is the head of the body, the church. His being the head means what? We do what he tells us to do. It's our function, our purpose as his body to do his will. Now, that would be so much easier. Can I just, I'm not complaining to God here, but, but this is just a fact of the matter. That would be so much easier to do if Jesus was sitting up here with us today. I mean, really, he was right here. And, and, and seven days a week, 365 days a year. Well, Lord, kind of here's what we're thinking. What do you think? And all you have to do is go. And we know, okay, we won't do that. You know, if it brought a smile to his face, we would say, we knew that was your will. Good idea. But he's not here. If he was here, we'd never have to wonder about which way to go. We'd never have what we call here in Nag's Head. We call them experiments. <laughs> See, at Nagshead Church, we're not afraid to try new things and do new things and do things differently because we believe that faith, we believe that, that being in the church is about being willing to take risks, and we think that's what faith is about, it's taking that risk. So here in this church, we're never content with the status quo, especially when we look around our community and realize most of our community does not yet know Jesus Christ. Our mission is not yet accomplished. So we try. We try different things, and sometimes we succeed, and sometimes we fail, but that doesn't stop us. You see, failure is not a bad thing, because failure only serves to tell us, well, here's what won't work, now you know. The bad thing would be what? To be too afraid to try anything at all. Do you know some churches that are afraid to change anything? You ever been to churches like that? They're dying. And here's what makes our relationship as a church with Christ really interesting. Paul says he is the head of the church. That means he's not the shoulders. He's not the arms or the hands, the torso, the legs, the feet, the fingers, the toes. He's the head. Well, who is the rest of that body? Turn and look at the person next to you and say, you are. Now, hopefully you're not the armpit, you know, but, but who's the, you know, you're, we are the rest of that body. And what Jesus and those disciples who knew him best have told us is that our role as the body, he's the head, our role as the body is to get our direction from the head and go with it. All right, well, he's not here. How do we do that? He's not here to ask. Not sitting in a chair this morning. Well, we seek his will through his word. We seek his will through prayer. We seek his will through trusting the Holy Spirit who does indeed live in us. He is present with us. Can't see him, but he's here in you, in me. We trust him to lead us and guide us his way. But you know what happens? 
Because we all are flawed. We all carry around in our bodies a sinful nature. Sometimes we get in the way. Sometimes we don't listen. Sometimes we let other voices around us speak louder than his. And we pay more attention to them than we do to him. But hopefully, church, hopefully the goal is that we always get back to what we know he has called us to do. For over a thousand years, starting around in the fifth century, the church was buried in tradition and in politics, and only the leadership could read the scriptures. And somehow those leaders were given the authority to forgive sin, and they became the mediators, the go-betweens, between man, between the people and God. How did that happen? And even one of their men was appointed to rule the church and was said to be infallible. When he speaks, he speaks God's words. When he speaks, it's as though the Bible's talking. He never gets it wrong, is what they were taught. But the church survived that, those thousands, thousand years. They survived it through reformation. They survived it through persecution. They survived it by protesting. And preachers 500 years ago, 600 years ago, men like Calvin and Luther and Zwingli were raised up in Europe to lead God's people back to the Bible. Men like William Tyndale sacrificed his life so that everybody would have the opportunity to hold in their hands a copy of the Word of God and be able to read it in their own language. Let's get it out of the Latin and get it out of the Greek and put it in the language of the common people so they can read it. I have a, I have a copy here. My son-in-law gave me this a couple Christmases ago. It's the New Testament, 1526. This is William Tyndale's translation. This predates the King James. If you were to open the pages, uh, you, you know, you can't read this stuff. This is pre-Elizabethan English. You know, I look at it and I go, what in the world is this saying? I can't read it hardly. On the back cover, it says, William Tyndale believed the Bible should be available in the vernacular, the speech of the common people, he famously declared. It says the story is that he looked out of his window one day and saw a farm boy plowing a field, and he said, that boy driveth, that the boy that driveth the plow shall know more of the scripture than an educated man. And so he set out to translate the Bible into their language of the day, and he did so against the will of the church at that time, and he ended up being killed for it. But you can, you can say the, cop, the Bible that you have, that you own, is a descendant of what William Tyndale did. And men like that spoke up and said, no, we need to see God bring the church back to where it needs to be. And God blessed them and they did. The point is this. That because the church is Christ and is part of his eternal plan, jot this down your notes somewhere, it's not in there, but put this down. The church cannot be stopped. It's Jesus. He's the head. How do he stop Jesus? Who can do that? Hitler tried. And he's in hell. And Jesus still reigns. And the church goes on. 
It's easy today to get discouraged by the economy and because the economy affects how we do church here at Nags Head. You know, it's easy to get discouraged by the way our government seems to be chipping away at religious leaders' liberties, but that only means the church will have to do what it's been doing for over 2,000 years. What is that? Depending on Christ, listening to our head, seeking God's direction on being creative, keeping our biblical purposes intact while at the same time being visionary enough to devise new strategies that will help us impact our ever-changing world with the gospel. But the church cannot be stopped because Christ is the head of the body and he promised that the gates of hell, what were the gates when you think think of the old ancient cities and their gates around the city, the gate of the city was its last defense, last line of defense. He said the gates of hell You picture hell having these gates. The gates of hell won't stop the church. Won't hold the church's advance back. But it would be great to literally sit at Jesus' feet and ask him for his thoughts on reaching this world. You know know that whatever answer you ask him, Jesus, thinking about doing this, whatever answer he gave would be the right one. You wouldn't have to say, well, we're going to pray about, you know, Jesus, here, here's what we want to do. And we understand what you say, but we're going to pray about it a little bit longer. <laughs> you know, you hear how stupid that is? He's not physically here. So what we do is we seek him in prayer. We ask for his direction. We study his word, the Bible, we, to get a good sense of his priorities. And sometimes we come up with the perfect plan. Sometimes it's though we must have dialed the wrong number. <laughs> Sometimes we're still living in this, because we're living in this imperfect world and and we we are imperfect people and we're dealing with imperfect people. And that's why I tell folks who take my Discover Next at church class, I say something like this, if you're afraid of change, this probably isn't the church for you because we're not afraid to change here. If you're looking for a perfect church, we tell them, keep on looking because you won't find it here. But at the end of each day, the heart of this church must always be, will whatever it is that we're about to do, that we're doing, will it bring glory to Christ? Will this honor his word? And here at Nagshead Church, we believe that within these pages, the pages of Scripture, especially in the historical book of Acts, the story of the very first churches, and in the epistles, the letters to the churches from the apostles to the first churches, there is all the, listen, there is here in this book all the instruction that we need for being his body in this world and in these times. Christ is the sovereign of the church. The second thing Paul says, Christ is the source of, of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. He is the originator, not only of creation, but old creation, but he's the originator of the new creation. He's the originator of the church, those who have new life in him. And he is that source, Paul says. Why? Because of his resurrection from the dead. That proves it. Now, Stop and think, Jesus, was Jesus the first to rise from the dead? And the answer is no, of course not. Jesus raised Jairus' daughter from the dead, for example. There are resurrections. Jesus was involved in Lazarus. There are resurrections in the Old Testament. So Jesus wasn't the first person to rise from the dead. 
But Jesus was the first to rise from the dead, listen, and die no more. Lazarus was raised from the dead, and then sometime later, Lazarus died. Jairus', Jairus daughter, this little 12-year-old girl, raised from the dead, and sometime later in life, she died again. Jesus was raised from the dead, and he was given a glorified body, and he ascended to heaven. He's still alive. He was the first to rise with a glorified, new, eternal body. And his resurrection placed him in position as the source of this new family, the church. And here's why, Paul says, because he's the firstborn. We saw that back in verse 15, that firstborn doesn't mean, as we think of it in English in our culture, that he was born, I mean, from a mother kind of a thing. It means he is the, it's a legal term, he is the inheritor of this new life. And he promises to share that new life with all of his body, the church. And that means that every true believer in Jesus who has ever died, your grandma that you miss and you want to see her and she was a Christian, every believer in Jesus who has ever died and every one of us in Christ who have yet to die will one day be raised from the dead. Listen to Paul's words in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 52. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised, incorruptible, and we will be changed. Listen to what Paul said to the Thessalonian church in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 16 through 18. He wrote to this church and he said, For the Lord himself, talking about this resurrection, it's an event that's yet to happen. For the Lord himself, Jesus will descend from heaven with a shout, with the archangel's voice, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are still alive will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. That's why I said, could it be today? And I'm saying, yeah, I would really like for that to happen. And the dead in Christ, he said, will rise first. Here, listen to what Paul's saying to us in Colossians. Because Jesus rose, you and I can be part of his body, the church, and we are guaranteed our own resurrection one day. Paul's conclusion is this. So he wraps up this section. He said, since Jesus Christ is God, the ruler, the creator, the precursor, the sustainer of the universe, and he brings himself close to me by being sovereign and the source of my church, the family of faith I belong to. All of that means, and he gives us his summation there at the end of verse 18, Christ alone, number three, commands total supremacy. So all this has happened. Here's who he is. Why? So that he might have first place in everything. Supremacy means what? There's none higher. Supremacy means at the top. We have a supreme court in this country. And once the supreme court has made a ruling, there is no other court to which you may appeal. You've gone as far as it goes. You've gone to the top. Those in Paul's day... 
the Gnostics that we've talked about, the Jews, the pagans, the atheists who taught that Christ was not God, but he was only a created man like the rest of us, they get their answer here. He is the preeminent one in all things. Those who say, well, yeah, Jesus should be first in the church, but he has no right, he has no say, he has no authority in secular things, are refuted right here. Because Paul says he, that he should have preeminence in what? All things. Everything. Jesus claims first place in everything, including the secular, including the sacred. That's why. It's an insult to Christ for anyone to say that the Bible is irrelevant to today's culture. It's his word and he's above all. That's why it's an insult to Christ to try and silence or put his church out of his existence. That's why it's an insult to say you can't say Merry Christmas. This world would not exist without him. We cannot wipe him out. We cannot pretend as though he's not here because he is here in and through and above everything. And yet this world wants to be free of him, don't they? Guess what? When it's all said and done, he'll still be the sovereign creator of the universe. The Bible promises one day in Philippians chapter 2, verses 10 and 11, that every knee will bow of those on heaven and those on earth and under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. One day that's going to happen, but to those who never acknowledged him as Lord here and now, that will be too late to receive his salvation as they stand and then kneel before his great white throne judgment. That's why while we're here and we have the, the chance and our neighbors have the opportunity, our friends, it's why we must accept him and share him with others. How does Jesus rank? What about you and me? Does he have first place in your life, in my life? Is he, am I constantly trying to wrestle control away from him? If I surrender my will and my desires to his will and to his desires, I am acknowledging in my life that he is supreme, that he is Lord. And listen, you and I, they're, there can only, only one person can have supremacy in your life. It's not your husband. It's not your wife. It's not your child. It's not your boss. If you're a Christian, it must be Jesus Christ. Who is it for you today? Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, We've said a lot of things about Jesus today. We've learned a lot of things from this, this passage. And you've said, Paul has packed so much into these few verses. We could spend weeks, literally, dissecting these verses and discovering what's in them and meditating upon them and chewing up these words. But I pray, God, that today we have a sense of who Jesus is in regards to us, the church, that he is the head. And he wants to be, he deserves to be, he claims to be, he commands to be. In first place in my life, in first place in my church. Help us in our hearts right now. 
If something else, someone else occupies that place, to take them away from that and give that position over to you, Jesus. We pray in your name. Amen. This has been a presentation of Nags Head Church, reaching people to discover life in Christ. Visit us on the internet at nagsheadchurch.org.